Hi everyone, I'm Lucas Mack and welcome to another episode of The Golden Rule Revolution, where inspiration and purpose come from treating people like people and nothing less. If you have watched any media, you have heard of the show Good Morning America. And today we are bringing to you the weekend morning anchor of Good Morning America, Whit Johnson. Whit is a longtime friend of mine. We started in the same TV station together on air. He was, uh, he and I were at the NBC affiliates in Tri Cities in Yakima, Washington, small market. And I went down to San Antonio from Tri Cities. He went on to Salt Lake City, eventually making it as a national news correspondent for CBS News, then went to LA as an anchor, main anchor, and then from LA, went to New York to take a job at Good Morning America, ABC. Look, that's his path professionally, but what you're going to hear in this podcast is his path personally. Wit is an amazingly important person to have in our national media narrative. He is not only an incredible husband and father, but he is someone who is bringing light into what some would call very dark places, which is the newsrooms in America. I'm excited to bring this episode to you. I hope you enjoy it. So I am honored to have Whit Johnson. Um, Whit, as you just heard me introduce him, is an amazing man. He's a, he's a husband. He is a father. He is a, he's a influencer, but I think more than as a journalist or, or TV personality, he's someone that you can see through his smile. You can see through the, the camera. He's, he's vulnerable and he's a powerful influence of treating people like people. I'm honored to have Whit Johnson on today. Whit, how you doing, brother? Hey, hey, thank you for the kind words, Lucas. And it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to talk to you. And it's amazing after all these years, our paths crossing again. And uh, so it's really cool to be here. Yeah. It's great to see you doing so well. And I love, I love what you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate, appreciate that. And, um, and same for you. It, Describe, I mean, I've talked, we've had uh, Brian Carlson, who you and I both worked with uh, before. That's some other people who've been in media. Describe what it's like. Take us through the journey of that small market, middle of nowhere beginning. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, to where you are now. But take us back. What, what, What is the journey of becoming a broadcast journalist? I mean, dude, you know this uh, just as much as anybody. And I I think regardless if you're a person of faith or not, there is no doubt that jumping into journalism is a leap of faith, right? Because you know when you get into it that it's going to be treacherous. You also know that the odds are stacked against you. um, And you have no idea how far it's going to go, how good you are, how good you're going to be, you know, and if you're going to be able to, you know, support yourself, support a family. So for me, um, I'll give you the shortest version possible. It was, you know, in college, I was really interested in journalism. Uh, I didn't know what, what I wanted to do. I was into sports. So I thought I wanted to do sports broadcasting put together a bunch of resume tapes. It was on VHS back then. Yes. Um, and then sent them out all over the country to small towns where I thought I could get a job. And then 
ended up in Yakima, Washington. You were in uh, Kennewick, so we were all part of the same, uh, uh, like, duopoly there. And um, that was my first job market. I think it was 125, um, (laughs) making no money. Uh, They they have you, they call you up. They're like, oh, like, (laughs) oh, yeah. Really explain that. I mean, literally. Yeah. No money. So my thing is, you know, I I generally don't like to talk about salaries, but I feel like in this case, because it's just like people don't really have that perspective. I mean, that entry level job in a small market, we were getting paid 18,000 a year. Yes. Um, which, you know, in some places like Yakima, you can survive on. Um, and, but I mean, I went into debt. I know a lot of my colleagues went into debt. You're barely hanging on. Um, you just, I, I remember at that time, I thought I may have even qualified for some like government assistance yes. and yes. things like that. But I, we were just outside the qualifications to get any help. So like we were totally on our own. We moved. I had never seen Yakima before in my life. They called me and said, be here in two weeks. Do you want the job? Here's what you're going to get paid. And I was just like, uh, yes. And next thing you know, we packed up the U-Haul trailer and several of my buddies helped me move out there. And there I was, wow. Yakima, Washington. That's awesome. That's awesome. So that was the start. And then from there, you know, the, the, uh, again, the shortest version possible. I went to Salt Lake city and then I was, uh, in, uh, Washington DC is a correspondent for CBS news. And then I left network news and went to LA and then I was in LA comfortable and happy. And then for whatever reason, decided to leave LA and then go back to network news. And now here I am in New York with, uh, ABC news and we've lived in five States plus Washington DC. So it's been Amazing. coast to coast and back and back again. So Amazing. here we are. Amazing. And you have had some children along the way. Where, where yes. were your uh, daughters born in that journey? So my first daughter, Leah, was born. We were living in Maryland, just outside of Washington, um, Washington, D.C. And uh, I was working for CBS News. I was a network correspondent. And my life was crazy. Uh, I mean, I was on the road 200 days a year. I was covering politics, uh, the White House, but I was also during the week, running all over the country, anything and everything that happened. And when my daughter was born, we, you know, my, I'm, I'm from California, the San Francisco Bay Area, and my whole family's there. My wife's from Hawaii. Wow. So we had no family anywhere close to us. So when my daughter was born, we, it was this big decision. It's like, are we going to be able to do this mm-hmm. on the East Coast if I'm on the road all the time? Yeah. And we decided that we needed to get back to the West Coast. And that meant leaving network news and going back to local news, um, which at the time actually turned into a a great opportunity. And I'm really glad I did that. Um, And then we had our second daughter when we were in L.A. So first daughter in Maryland, second daughter in L.A. Two girls, Leah and Summer. (laughs) That's great. Exactly. Yep. (laughs) So for for you and this, this journey, you know, going from wanting to be a sportscaster to actually getting into the news and, and telling stories, how has that been for you as far as reporting on the story and then allowing the story to affect you to some degree? Because I know that that happens a lot with either people become yeah. apathetic or get burnt out or, you know, process it in some way. You know, for me, I never knew exactly when I started getting into broadcasting, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I had a high school radio station that I was part of. And so I thought maybe at first I want to be a morning disc jockey. 
My, my stepdad works in broadcasting in San Francisco. His name is Dr. Dean Adell, and he works for KGO. Mm. He was the first television and radio doctor in the country. Wow. <clears throat> and uh, so I spent a lot of time around KGO and a television station growing up. So when I got into college, I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe sports broadcasting would be good for me because I, I was into sports. I played uh, soccer in college. Um, and, you know, as a young man, um, the news is intimidating, right? You're looking at Peter Jennings and Brokaw and Rather, and I was watching all these guys, and I'm an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid in college, and you just think about whether you can actually manage that type of career. It was overwhelming. So I leaned towards sports because of that, because I thought that I would just be better at it. Mm. When push came to shove and I, when I was applying for jobs, <clears throat> um, it was hard to find a sports job. There were only a handful of them across the country, and there were hundreds of news jobs. Granted, they were in small towns across America, places I had never been. But I realized that I just it was going to be really difficult to get a sports job, so I took a reporting job in Yakima. Mm. <clears throat> That's cool. Forgive me. I've got a little bit. I'm getting over a cold. Okay. So every now and then I'm going to have to like move the phone away just to, uh, just to cough, but I'll be right back with you. No problem. Well, I think uh, this, <laughs> this is a good insertion point. I told you I have a yeah. little surprise for you. So okay. All right. Bear with me uh, for a sec here because um, I'm going to pull this up. A rattlesnake in your home, oh, it'll give you the willies. And that's exactly what happened to one of our reporters, Lucas Mack, today. Here's a look at the creepy little thing. Lucas found the baby rattlesnake in his apartment at Clearwater Square in Kennewick. His apartment manager called Animal Control. They picked it up and now have it at their Pasco facility. If you find a snake on your property, Animal Control says you're pretty much on your own, but they will assist you if you feel threatened. And of course, we checked with Lucas. He wasn't bitten, and he says he'll be okay. Okay, so you and I never, <laughs> we were never on the air together per se. However, however, I ran, I was moving out of this one apartment that I was living in and my, uh, I was getting married. My wife, she was on the, the local, uh, the other, another station in the market. So I was moving over to her apartment. All I had left in my apartment was my bed. That's it. And I woke up that morning and I was laying on the ground in my apartment at Clearwater Square, which you and I had been to some barbecues together. That was kind of the hangout place. A lot of TV guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I look down like two feet, two feet in front of my face is a coiled rattlesnake looking right at me. And <laughs> I was like, why? I backed up very slowly. It was right from where I stepped off my bed. So I called animal control and it took them two hours to get there. Finally, they got there. They got this rattlesnake out. And then you, you know, being in small market news, it was on the police scanner that animal control had found a rattlesnake in someone's apartment. So we went out and I guess someone at the station went out and covered it and you reported on it. It just so happened to be that the rattlesnake you reported on was in my apartment. So. That's amazing. Where was I though? So is this when I was in Kennewick? Yeah, you're a weekend anchor in Kennewick. Wow, wow. I was going to say, I'm like, that VO sounded uh, old school years ago. That's amazing. Oh, man, and uh, I'm actually going to edit this in live so people can see that, but it's, it's a kick. And uh, 
very it's cool enemy of small market news yeah oh yeah oh exactly i mean the 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 amount that we learned um you know going into yakima and kennewick and where you have to do everything um and just uh, touching quickly back on what you asked me before about the sports and the news transition once i started doing news that was the only job i could get was a news job and once i started doing it i really fell in love with the process telling stories. I felt like I was able to connect with people. Um, and I enjoyed that. And so I never really looked back to sports. Um, I do enjoy covering sports from time to time when it makes the news. I've covered two Olympics. I've been to Sochi for the winter games. I was in Rio for the summer games wow. uh, when I was with NBC. So I love covering sports, but over the years, I've really um, developed a passion for news and the things that go on in our lives day to day and what impacts people. Um, and I'm very moved by the things that we cover. And uh, and that all started back in Yakima, Washington. Love so it. even those small little <laughs> rattlesnake stories really started to enjoy it. That's cool. That's beautiful. So, you know, one of the things we were talking before, I told you before we started this episode, and everyone listening, I just fully I cannot recommend following Wit enough. You not only get to see – uh, behind the scenes of what goes on in, in ABC, the network, and Good Morning America. But you get to see the man behind the, the desk. And Wit does a really beautiful job of, of sharing himself. And I told Wit before we started recording that one of the videos that really stood out to me that I think is an epitome of who he is and how he shows up in the world is he did this rap on, on camera uh, a couple <laughs> weeks ago. And I thought, you know, that, that is showing vulnerability and where you're not worried about image. And, and I could tell like, you know, the other, your, your uh, co-anchors there and the, I think they loved it. And it was, Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Them, like they appreciated you being an invitation for them to be more themselves. And so along your journey, how has being vulnerable or opening up like that, or just saying, I'm going to be me. How has that played out in your career? You know, it, that's a really good question. And I think what I've found over the years is we, we have no control. Mm. I mean, as journalists, we can only control what, what we're doing on, on that given story. You know, we, there, there, there are only so many things that, that we can actually uh, control, right? We can go find interviews. We can make phone calls, this and that. We can deliver it a certain way. But authenticity is the true connection to people watching at home, mm. right? Like it, somebody told me once, a talent coach told me this once, and it stuck with me ever since. This was years ago. He said, if you really want to be a great journalist, television journalist specifically, the viewer needs to be having the same experience that you're having, mm. or they need to know that you are feeling the same thing that they're feeling. And that's an interesting thing if you think about it, because I'm not supposed to go on and tell people what my opinion is, right? But, and if something is really sad, I'm not supposed to come on TV and say something is really sad. But there is a way that you can deliver where you're able to convey that message. Like, I get it, right? Mm. This is an awful story. Yeah. You know, if there are lots of victims, the way you deliver it is very important. The viewer needs to know that you're somehow feeling the same thing. If you're just reading over, let's say, a line of script says, 
there was a terrible car crash today and five people died. And you just read it just like that. Terrible car crash today and five people died. You know, somehow you need to read the same thing, but let them know that there was a terrible car crash today and five people died. They need to know that you're feeling it. And there's no perfect way to do that, to be authentic in this world where on television, where it's like there are cameras everywhere, there are people around you, things are scripted. But at the same time, I look for those moments to try to connect and to be myself. And at the end of the day, a viewer is either going to like me or they're not. I'd rather they don't like me, but the real version of me. I don't want them to dislike me because I'm trying to put on some front and be somebody else. So if there's an opportunity for me to be me, if there's an opportunity for a little personality for for me to do something different, whether it's, you know, drop a few rap rhymes on the air or on social media or whatever, um, then I'm going to do that because that's, that's who I am. And if somebody doesn't like that, then that's just, that's just how it's going to be. Mm -hmm. The the news media is so saturated right now. They can pick any channel and any person, any kind of person they want to hear or watch. But I'm hoping that when they watch me and if they watch me on a regular basis, I'm hoping they just get to know who I am. And they know that I care. I take this job really seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously. Mm. And I think that people have watched, who've watched me enough over the years have, have, have come to recognize that. And so that's why I, I like to have fun. I like to have a good time. I'm, I mean, I'm like you, you know, I'm a, re- I'm a regular dude who has a kind of a bizarre, strange job, yeah. you know? Yeah, right. Well, in... I think this is a good segue in, in a way, you know, we share, we both battled the darkness in different times in our life. What was, you know, one of the things that people know about me in the show is, is I talk about, you know, when I was 20, I attempted suicide and I've gone through just a massive journey um, the past three and a half years of healing and facing the pain and not being afraid anymore, feeling uncomfortable, just talk, telling my story. And because, you know, when I share my story, it gives permission for other people to share their story and they can heal. And statistically right now in the United States, 79% of all suicides are men. Uh. So there's, there is a great, there's a, I don't even know if there's a problem that men are experiencing yet not talking about. And I think when we don't talk about the issues or just insecurities or struggles or confusions or pain as men, we isolate not just ourselves, but we also isolate those closest to us. And so what, what has been your journey as much as you want to share through that process? Well, I appreciate the way you put it, which is you're giving people permission to share. Because I think that that has been part of the problem, right? There is this, I don't know, this long-standing facade that men have put up that somehow we aren't supposed to have emotional issues, right? Right. So being able to talk about it openly does give others permission to say, hey, you know what, I have some stuff going on as well. And for me personally, I didn't have any kind of trauma to go back to, right? And that, that's what was so confusing for me. I didn't have a terrible childhood. I didn't have a, an ex, a, a one-time experience or any abuse or anything like that that happened to me. But I started feeling 
severely depressed when I was maybe 13, 14, and it became debilitating, <coughs> excuse me, it became debilitating when I got to my sophomore, junior, senior year of high school mm. to the point where I was harming myself. And I, I'm not going to get into the details of everything that I did, but it was, it was so bad that I didn't even go to my own high school graduation. Mm. And everything came to a head when I went to college. I was playing soccer in college. That was my passion. <clears throat> soccer was always my escape, right? Mm. Whenever I was having issues. Um, my freshman year of college, I was really struggling in school. I had a couple of injuries, which kept me out of soccer. And I just felt like I was failing. I'm like, everything's falling apart. I'm not going to be able to do this. And so I attempted to commit suicide when I was 18, mm. just a few months into college. And I was, I don't remember a whole lot from that night, but I was in an ambulance. Friends of mine found me. Uh, the, the medics in the ambulance likely saved my life. Mm. I spent the night in the hospital. My family came in. I remember seeing my tearful parents standing over me in the hospital bed. I remember the shame that came with that. Mm. And then I remember being shipped off in an ambulance to a mental health facility because in the state of California, if you attempt to commit suicide, it's a 5150 is what they call it. And you have to go on a 72 hour mental health hold. Mm. So I went to a facility where I was surrounded by people who had legitimate mental health issues, things like schizophrenia, all sorts of other things that uh, were foreign to me at the time as an 18 year old. Right. <laughs> so to see all of that, instantly changed me, right? I'm not saying that I healed in that moment. That didn't happen. But it was a, it was a pivotal moment in my life. Everything before that was kind of building up to this complete breakdown. That changed me completely. Mm. I decided it instantly. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be in that mental health facility. I had wounds, injuries, again, that I'm not going to get in detail how I got them, but I had injuries that were going to be seen by by everyone for years to come mm. and i was ashamed mm. and felt guilty i have younger siblings um i have a brother and sister who are twins i have a, a baby half sister i've got five stepbrothers many of them were going through some things on on their own mm. I, had, I, had, I had one family member who was in and out of rehab constantly when this you know about this time that everything occurred. Mm. And I thought to myself, what, what kind of role model am I to these people in my own life? Mm. Uh, how could I let down my friends, my family, my parents? And so I aimed to change myself, but the problem was I overcorrected. So I went into like, like the kids say these days, YOLO, you only live once, go big or go home. I started drinking heavily partying heavily and with my crowd of friends um you know they were having a good time for me i always knew it was different it was kind of like i didn't care if i didn't wake up the next day mm. and that sort of abusive behavior continued even when you and i first met yeah i mean i was still still drinking a lot when i got to yakima and kennewick and major issues were manifesting themselves 
And I can't say that I, I didn't have the same suicidal thoughts that I had when I was younger, but it was just a fear of the future, the fear of the unknown. It was debilitating and chewed me up, mm. but I just kept plugging away. I kept plugging away and I kept absorbing little successes. And one thing that one therapist taught me one time was, you know, try to catalog all of the things in your life, right? Mm. Things that make you happy, like make a list of things that make you happy. And it can be really small things like I like to eat tacos. You know, I like to watch movies with my family or, uh, you know, I like to sleep in or take a nap or I like a sunny day or something like that. It could be anything. And you write down all the things you, you like and then write down all the things you fear. And you'll find that there are so many more things to be thankful for in your life than the things that bring you down. Um, that doesn't mean it's an easy, it's easy to just get over. You're like, look, I've got more, you know, more glass half full than half empty and you can just get over it and move on. It takes years. Right. But over the years, I just kept plugging away, accomplishing a little bit more success in my career, was always f afraid, was always, you know, very critical of myself, uh, still struggle with that today. Um, but I, you know, I met my wife and she completely changed me, mm. completely changed me. I mean, my wife, Andrea, is, I kid you not, like an earth, I believe she's like an earth angel that was sent to yeah. me Love at a very specific time in my life. Mm. You know, my friends would all say that I got married young, like oh, I got married young, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I knew instantly that this woman was going to change me. Mm. She was this massive grounding force. And whenever I got off track, I, it's not like she was, you know, cracking the whip, telling me to behave and do these things. All I had to do is turn and look to her mm. and she would guide me. Mm. It's just who she is. And as we moved through our careers and started thinking about family and everything, little by little, I was able to just build up some confidence piece by piece, you know, and take take advantage of the things that I cared about, spending more time with my family, building my own family. Yeah. I like, I, I mean, simple things. Like I like to, if it's a sunny day, I want to go outside and like eat lunch outside, mm. you know, and even if I'm out on the road and working hard, I'll take advantage of those little things that make me happy. Mm. And that has driven me through my career over the years. And I can tell you now, honestly, Lucas, I'm the happiest guy I've ever been in my life. I'm happy. I'm confident. And my priorities are in line. And if I were to get fired tomorrow from my job, I would be emotionally just fine. Mm. And it, it feels great to be here. I know I'm still working on stuff, yeah. but um, I'm grateful to be here and I feel good. And, um, yeah, and I feel like I finally have the perspective that matters. Brother, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. Thank you for sharing your story and having the courage to share. I define vulnerability as having the courage to experience love. And definitely you stepping through and sharing that and receiving love, the love of your wife that grounds you, the love of yourself when you start looking at the little wins. And I also want to acknowledge you for something you just said, you know, is, is kind of a passing comment, but you went to therapy and I yes. went to therapy for two years, every single week, every single week, sometimes twice a week for two years straight. And 
my wife and I last night, I'm struggling still with a lot of uh, things that come up, you know, as my kids get older and I see them at certain ages where I experienced horrible things, it triggered, it, it reminds me, it hurts sometimes. And I told my wife last night, I said, no matter how much I love my children and I love them and they love me, it cannot replace the love I didn't get. And yeah. I've had to come to that acknowledgement of, I have to let that part die, that, that trying to get the love. And for me, that, that's been you know, my journey and it will continue to be my journey, but I want to acknowledge you and, and thank you for going to therapy because you doing the work, and it is work. You writing down the wins, that's work. You being aware, that's work. You going to therapy, that's work. That's working on yourself. And because you chose to step through courageously to work on yourself, you're where you are today, not as a place of achievement, but as a place of influence. So I want to thank you for doing the work as, as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a friend. Thank you for doing the work. The thing you mentioned about <clears throat> therapy and putting in the work, I think what's hard for people is when we go to see a doctor, for example, like you broke your arm or you're sick, we go there with an expectation of immediate results. Yeah. And therapy doesn't work like that. Right. It's years and it takes many months just for a therapist or, or anyone to just kind of break through so that you can get an understanding of what's going on. It takes a while for people to get to know you. It takes a while for you to be able to share. So this idea that going and talking to someone is going to instantly be a cure, it's just not true. Right. But it's important to do it. It's an important step. And at the time when I first started doing therapy, when I, my parents <clears throat> knew that I was struggling in high school. And so they sent me to a bunch of different people. I saw an anger management guy. I saw, saw a psychiatrist who like managed my meds. And then I saw a therapist who I spoke to. And that person changed a number of times. And it's hard for me in these younger years to point to one person who like had all the, the answers. That's not really how it worked for me. Right. But as I got older, as I went through the process, I started keying in on things that they told me about things that they taught me and and like like that one therapist I don't even remember this therapist's name but mm -hmm. this was after my suicide attempt after I went back to college they connected me with some therapist through the clinic um, the athletic department did because I was uh, playing soccer on the soccer team at the time and they did this whole intervention to try to make sure that I was okay they sent me to somebody at the school I didn't want to go you know I was like no I'm fine I'm fine I'm not going to do that again I'm fine yeah. And he's the one who said, you know, catalog those things in your life that make you happy. Mm. And it was just it was just that that one thing that has stuck with me for so long. And I it's just taking a moment. And I still do that today. Like, I'll just take a moment. You have to just step back. Right. Like, I'll be stressed out about my career. I mean, look, like my job is stressful. People yeah. people probably look at me and say, hey, that, that guy is successful. He, he did it. But I'm still in the grind, right? Every day is a battle. We're all competing for whatever the next thing might be and, you know, always looking over our shoulder for the next person who might come in. 
And thankfully, I'm in a place emotionally where I can deal with all of that. Mm. Some people aren't. But I'm in a place where I can deal with that. And sometimes it's just taking a step back. I was in... um, I was filling in for David Muir uh, on World News, anchoring um, on Black Friday. Right. And I was sitting in the chair, stressed out. You know, it's like before the show, it is stressful. Mm-hmm. It's like, and this was, wasn't even a full show. It was just the West Coast was going to see it. Um, <clears throat> but like we're jamming away. You know, my cheeks are beat red because I'm just like mm-hmm. fired up trying to get everything done before the show. And I just had to take a step back where it was like I rolled my chair back a little bit and just looked around. It's like, this is the same studio where Peter Jennings, Diane Sawyer, Ted Koppel, like the list goes on, Charlie Gibson. And here I am sitting here. And it's like I had to just drink that in for a moment. And, of course, that's a a big moment, right? But then a couple days later, I'm – watching frozen two with my girls, you know, my two daughters, they're five and seven years old. They're crazy, you know, but I love them to death. And we're watching frozen. And in all these big moments in the movie, I have to turn around and I just look at their faces and I just watch them, you know, and I'm not even looking at the movie anymore. I'm looking at them looking at the movie. And these are the moments that just, they just, they just make everything right. And, and it's so important to just, catalog that stuff somehow you don't need to necessarily write it down but you just need to somehow and this doesn't matter if you're dealing with depression or not i think it's just so important to just take a step back from your life and just take inventory and and absorb and appreciate what you have right in front of you that is beautiful and powerful and profound and simple you know that maybe that's why it's profound it's because it's so simple and um what a great what a great lesson and man brother thank you for sharing that um one uh one last question is i think as people are listening i I was watching a ted talk this morning of a gal who um she was a correspondent for one of the cable networks and she, she had done really well in her career in, in uh, media <clears throat> stepped out, but her Ted talk was interesting, but she was talking about how when she was covering the Super Bowl, um, when the Seahawks won um, one year, she was groped and she told her producer that she was groped and they're, they're like, you know, sorry that happened to you. Are you still able to go live? And she was, mm, wow. she was like, what? Like she was really traumatized and she talked about, you know, listening to your heart versus other people. It was, it was a really beautiful message, but you, yeah. you, it's just the national narrative. I think now, especially the news and the movie that's coming out with, you know, about Fox news and all those things. Mm-hmm. How, how is it being a male anchor reporter journalist in the industry, but knowing that you it's, it's like, there's spotlight, but also a really cool responsibility or opportunity to be yeah. influential in that. How has how that played? How have you thought of that? And how have you processed? I, I'll tell you, Lucas, everything has changed. Hmm. Everything has changed. Hmm. The Me Too movement has reshaped the media landscape. Hmm. And I, I mean, in just in a short period of time, I can tell you, and, and 
I, I would never call out a former employer, right? Mm -hmm. And like throw them under the bus. I appreciate every opportunity I had. But I'll tell you, years ago, um, when my first daughter, uh, when my wife was pregnant with my first daughter, I had this experience where um, the network I was working for was going to send me someplace while my wife was on bed rest. Mm, Even though I had a, an agreement to not, uh, not travel during this very, very brief period of time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, without getting into all the details, it really turned into something significant that I remember. And it was like a real altercation. Mm. And I walked away from that going, like, how could this be? You know, I'm, my wife is pregnant, going to go into labor any moment. Like, how can we be having this conversation about whether or not I travel? We, we have other people who can do that. Um, but that was just kind of standard procedure at the time. Mm. And now I cannot imagine a world where that would happen now. Wow. All of the networks, my current network, all of the other networks I used to work for are internally trying to fix this and they're trying to figure out how they're going to do it. Mm. And it's not just a matter of, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace and all that stuff, which, you know, these zero tolerance policies that existed before, but clearly weren't working. Like now they're being reinforced with many, many layers. But beyond that, it's just how can the workplace in the media specifically, be more family friendly. Yeah. Um, and that's to men and women. How can it also, you know, be more understanding of personal issues that people may have, maybe people yeah. who don't have families? Because where you, you have this media saturation now, there are all these different networks and all these things going on. And so people can leave, right? Yeah. So networks are realizing if they want to keep talented people, they got to take care of them. They got to take care of their families. They can't abuse them emotionally. They can't allow them to continue to be abused by colleagues if that's what's going on. And I know for a fact that the networks are all working on this. Um, they haven't perfected it yet. But I can tell you, Lucas, from my perspective, as a man in the workplace, I definitely feel a, a heavier weight of responsibility on my shoulders mm. to not only watch what I say, and it's not like I, like prior to that, I would, right. you know, say no, inappropriate totally. things. I don't yeah. believe I did. I think I was always very, you know, appropriate and kind and polite to my coworkers. However, you do pay attention to the conversations around you much more. Hmm. And if something seems to step out of line, you take a step back. I think people kind of look around a little bit more like maybe this conversation needs to stop now. But, you know, in news, it's different because we'll cover very awful things. Yeah. And sometimes you get a little jaded and it's like and people can make offhanded jokes about things that are happening. Um, and now more than ever, there is that feeling that everything needs to be professional. Every conversation, whether it's about politics, whether it's about gender issues, um, sexuality, depression, um, mental health, all of that stuff, the newsroom conversation has definitely changed. Mm. And the way people treat each other, and it's not just, it's not just harassment, but you know, people being rude to each other, language, all of that stuff, there is a shift that's happening now, and we're just the tip of the iceberg. Every, everything is going to change, and I'm, I, I, think, I think in the long run, it's for the better. Yes. But in the, in the short term, 
there's some catching up to do. And uh, nobody's totally got it right just yet. But I think that um, I think that down the road, it's it's probably going to be good for everybody. And I know that they're already at least at ABC. They're already changing some, you know, some um, some of the benefits so that uh, families can have more access to different things. So um, and some of the rules to, to try to like really I mean, again, every network had an anti abuse policy. Well, now it's being reinforced and reinforced and reinforced again. And I think down the road, it's going to be good. But it's still, there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I know it's, that's my assumption was there is a lot of pressure. But I also think because you are who you are, it's a beautiful opportunity, even if, you know, you don't need to see it that way. It's just who you be. It's just keep being who you are and keep being vulnerable and keep sharing because, you're making an impact brother. And I, I really mean that it's fun to watch you. Um, it's an honor to know you and, and, uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on And Thanks for, thanks for sharing your story and thank you for, you know, wait, I would say if I was going to sum you up in one word, it's kind, you're a kind person and keep being that way, brother. I really, thanks my friend. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. And, kindness is everything right so we all need to strive for that and when if i ever catch myself wavering i try to correct myself and get get back on track with that but um thank you for for recognizing that and i just gotta gotta, i'm trying to follow your lead here man the permission (laughs) to share it's 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 um i think it's really powerful what you're doing and i'm happy to be a part of it thank you brother thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you found solace in Witt's story and him sharing his journey. If you are struggling with suicide, if suicidal thoughts or tendencies, or if you know someone, my, you need to drop the judgment of yourself or drop the judgment of others. Just simply allow yourself to be loved. And that starts with reaching out to someone to get help or helping someone get help. But don't judge. Don't judge yourself. Those desires to vacate and evacuate your body in in your present circumstance is just the fruit of pain that has yet to be addressed. You're not alone. You never will be alone. And I want you to know that if you need help or if you need help or if you need to talk to someone, message me or message someone that you trust and care about because the time for your healing is now. I want to thank Wit for sharing his story courageously. I want to thank every one of you for listening today. And I want you to know that treating people like people starts with first treating yourself the way you want to be treated. That's what the golden rule is about. You cannot give what you do not have. You cannot treat others kindly if you don't treat yourself kindly. You cannot love another if you first don't love yourself and know that in order to love yourself, you truly have to receive the love that is already available for you in the universe, in the air, in this moment. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Lucas Mack, and I look forward to speaking with you on the next episode. (laughs) 